The text for our sermon this morning is Job chapter 14 and verse 4, but we're going to read verses 1 through 4 for some context. Man who is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Verse 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. At this time, we'll call the kids down to the front for the children's sermon. Last week, we learned that it is our nature to not love God. Just like it's the nature of a fish to live in water, it's our nature to sin against God. The verses that we just read a minute ago tell us how that happens. The verse asks that we read asks the question, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And that's a special kind of question. It's like when your parents catch you getting into the cookie jar or into the candy and they ask, did I say you could have that? It's a question you don't have to answer because the answer is always no. When Job says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? The answer is no one. Now, what that question means is, we're all unclean, dirty with sin. And because we're dirty with sin, we produce other sinners too. I mean, when you look at an acorn, you know what an acorn is, right? It's hard to imagine that everything that makes a giant oak tree is inside that little thing. Everything that's an apple tree is inside that little black seed in the apple. It's hard to imagine that. I mean, it's not as if you cut it open and inside the acorn you, you see a, a teeny tiny little ac- uh, tree inside. But everything that will grow into a, a giant oak tree is inside that acorn. And if that acorn is planted, it'll grow into a giant oak tree that will produce its own acorns. And so on and so on it will go. Every oak tree in the world today is the fruit of an oak tree God planted in the beginning. And this is true of people as well. I mean, it's obviously true about our bodies, right? The traits of our families live in our blood and get passed on. Some of you have blue eyes. Well, how did that happen? Well, it happened because someone in your family has blue eyes. Maybe your mom or your dad. Aiden's sister, Arian, has greenish eyes. Well, mine are blue and her moms are brown. How did that happen? Well, my mom's eyes were green. So that trait is it's in our blood. And it's true of more than our bodies, though. It's also true of our souls. As you grow up, you're going to hear people say to you, you probably already heard it, you're just like your dad, or you take after your mom. And it's not just because you look like your parents, but because you do and say things like them, or you have attitudes like them. Well, you might say, well, I live with them, so I learned it from them. And that's partly true. Whenever I hear a kid using bad words, I know they've heard it from dad or mom. But many times we act like relatives that we haven't met or don't know. Maybe your grandma or grandpa died before you were born, but your aunts and uncles always say to you, you know, that's just how your grandpa acted. You didn't learn anything from him because you never met him. Well, our Bible verses today explain how it happens. And it does so by talking about sin. Why is it that we are sinners? Your parents never taught you to lie. I'm sure of that, did they? But sadly, you know how to do it. Your parents never taught you how to disobey. But sadly, you know how to do it. 
Now, when Job says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean, he's explaining how it happens that we're all sinners. When Adam and Eve sinned, their nature changed. And this nature they have passed on to everyone. But let me say something important to you because you're Christian children. God placed you in Christian families when you were born. That's why you were baptized when you were a baby. That was God's way of putting His mark on you that you belong to Him. And if you belong to Him, then inside you is the Spirit of Jesus. And just like everything that will be a, a giant oak tree is inside that acorn, as you grow, if you feed the seed by coming to church, by reading your Bible and praying, that seed of faith will grow into a strong and healthy Christian life. After we pray, you can return to your seats. O God, who hath so greatly loved us and mercifully redeemed us, increase our love to your word, which even the angels desire to look into. Make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it until we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. Today we're dealing with original sin and specifically the question, how does the sinfulness of Adam's nature pass on to all his descendants? Like last week, we're not making a distinction between believer and unbeliever. We're simply talking of man as man. Opponents of our faith object to our doctrine, usually because the presentation is inaccurate. It's not that Adam sinned, so God cursed his children for it, but that all his children were involved in his sin, and therefore the judgment is just. And today, we'll see how that works. The order of the catechism is intentional. Each question builds on the doctrines of the previous questions. When you build a house, obviously, you don't start with the attic. Lord's Day 1 is the introduction. Question 1, the comfort of belonging to Jesus. Question 2, what do I need to know to have that comfort? And the answer is the famous three G's, guilt, grace, and gratitude. We must know our guilt. We must know the grace of God, and we must know how to show gratitude for God's grace. And that's the outline of the catechism. Lord's Days 2 through 4 explain our guilt. Lord's Days 5 through 31 explain the grace of God, and Lord's Days 32 to 52 explain how we show our gratitude. So today we're moving on to the question of how the sinful nature is transmitted. Genesis 1.31 reads, Then God saw everything that He had made, and indeed it was very good. So how then, <coughs> excuse me, how then, did Adam's nature, which was originally righteous, become sinful? And how is it that his sinful nature is passed on to us? Those are the questions that we'll answer this morning. Our outline is as follows. Our sinful nature, number one, is not God's doing. Number two, is man's doing. And number three, it is transmitted. Our sinful nature, number one, is not God's doing. Now, once again, our text reads, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. The doctrine our verse is stating by way of an emphatic question, a rhetorical question is, man's very nature is sinful, and this sinful nature is passed on 
to every successive generation. Our text is using the imagery of birth, bringing a new person out of another. The doctrine that this statement assumes is that the source is unclean, and therefore all that springs from that source will also be unclean. I'm getting ahead of myself, but this is why Scripture always uses the terms regenerate, new birth, born again, as metaphors for the restoration of the soul to God's favor. We don't need to spend a lot of time on this first point because it's obvious. Man's fall in nature is not God's fault. Question six stops that objection in its tracks. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? Answer, by no means, not at all, but God created man good and after his own image in true righteousness and holiness that he might rightly know God is creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. Man's fallen sinful nature is not God's fault. Man brought it on himself. Man was created in the image of God, which question six defines following Ephesians 4.24 as righteousness and true holiness. Man was created to know God, to love God, and to live with God forever. Now, a careful thinker hears this and says to himself, wait a minute, Adam sinned. How can God justly hold Adam's guilt against his descendants? Against me. And that leads us directly to our second point. That our sinful nature is man's fault. Question 7 asks, whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature? Answer, from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. Hence... Our nature has become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. And I assume that you'll recognize there the words of Psalm 51.5, which we quoted last week. They're in that answer. Romans 5.12, which we also quoted last week. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. Thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. So sin entered by one man, but also all men sinned. How does that work? Genesis 5, 1 and 2 reads, In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him, male and female created he them and blessed them, and called their name Adam in the day that they were created. You notice that this passage says that the first man was called Adam. That was his given name, Adam. And also that the species was named Adam. It's very clear. God made him singular. Male and female created he them, plural, and called their, plural, name, singular, Adam. Whatever else may be implied by this, it's clear that mankind has, at some level, a basic oneness which Scripture tells us is rooted in covenant. Now, covenants have certain elements, stipulations placed on the parties, promises and threats pronounced for faithfulness, or unfaithfulness, respectively, and signs or seals, what we call sacraments. We see this in man's creation. Upon man's creation, he was given a law by which he must live. Remaining in Eden meant abstaining from the tree of knowledge, from the fruit of the tree of knowledge, and partaking of the fruit of the tree of life. The two trees were the sacraments of the covenant. When Adam abstained from the tree of knowledge, God was signifying and sealing to him the threat of death for sin. When Adam ate 
of the tree of life, God was signifying and sealing the promise of eternal life. By nature, covenants are perpetual. They last as long as they're not violated. When God made covenant with Adam, it was also made with all his as yet unborn offspring. For God blessed them and called their name Adam. Adam stood as a public figure. His actions within the covenant had implications and ramifications for all his descendants. Now, while Genesis doesn't use the term covenant, all the elements are there. Scripture later, though, affirms that Adam was in covenant with God. In Hosea 6-7, Israel is rebuked for breaking God's covenant. And God says, like Adam, you have transgressed my covenant. By virtue of this covenant, Adam acted for us. By virtue of our physical and spiritual descent from him, we acted in him. The nature of our guilt then is twofold. We were covenantally represented by Adam, and we are descended from him. Now, people often say, it's not fair that Adam's guilt be imputed to me. I guarantee you that they wouldn't object to living in the Garden of Eden if Adam hadn't sinned. It's not fair that I get to live in paradise because of Adam's obedience. Pigs will fly before someone makes that objection. And let me quickly shoot down another objection before we move on to our third point. Anyone who has ever, ever sinned cannot object to the imputation of Adam's guilt. The only way that that objection can hold water is if you have never sinned. If you have, then your life shows that you agree with Adam's actions. You sin too. And that brings us to our third point, and we'll camp down here for a while. Number three, the sinful nature is transmitted, and we'll talk about the mechanics. Our text assumes this fact. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? It's an emphatic rhetorical question. And it's so emphatic that Job answers the question, no one. The fountain of human nature is polluted, and therefore, everything that comes out of that fountain will be polluted as well. And again, Genesis 5 is very enlightening in this respect. It tells us, in the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Notice, That man's original state is asserted again. He was made in the image of God, in righteousness and true holiness. But then look at what the following verse says. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness, after his image, and called his name Seth. Adam's name remained, but the glory of the likeness was gone. Seth inherits not the original image of God, but the likeness of his fallen parent. If anything can be taken for granted, it's this. Children are the offspring of their parents. Now, last week I alluded to the fact that man's whole nature, body, and soul is propagated by natural generation, and we're going to elaborate more on that now. It's not just physical traits, skin, hair, eye color, that are passed on genetically from parent to child, but also traits of character, and especially specifically original sin, because the soul is bred along with the body. It is a whole person that is conceived and born, not just a shell, a body. Now, this isn't a subject that we normally entertain ourselves with, but since the Bible addresses it, it must be important. 
A child isn't just a mass of beautifully molded clay. It is not merely nor primarily a body. The essential element in the child's being is its spiritual and moral nature. Parental features are not graven merely in the child's face, but also in the child's soul. There is nothing more obvious than that children take after their parents. In every language of every race on earth, there is a saying identical in meaning to our like father, like son. Although my particular field of expertise is church history, I have a deep interest in history in general. And one thing I have repeatedly noticed about the ancient historians is that their accounts of the histories of various nations are built upon the very presupposition that we're asserting. If you read Thucydides, Polybius, or Livy, you'll find them repeatedly saying things like, it's Carthaginian nature to do X, Y, Z. The Greeks always act this way. The Abyssinians are all alike. And that's not unfair stereotyping. It's generalization. If you had shown Polybius a Carthaginian who didn't do what he asserted they do and said to him, not all Carthaginians are like that, he would rightly reply, exceptions prove the rule. You only notice this one's different because you're measuring him up against the rest of them. Now, I'm not aware of the discomfort that some may feel as I say these things, but they really are true, and the Bible explains the reason why. It's not unfair or biased to notice patterns. That's actually how you survive. Yeah, sure, not all snakes are venomous, but many of them are, so it's not bad policy to keep them away from your children. Keep distance. Don't let your guard down when you're in their territory. It's not unfair. It's just a natural defense mechanism that's built into us based upon the fact that like begets like. Career school teachers will be the, you know, who have taught parents and their children, they'll be the first ones to affirm what I'm saying. You're just like your dad. You take after your mom. And those statements are not about the child's looks, but about the child's character. Children inherit their personalities, traits of soul from their parents. You see it even in children who have never met family members, grandparents. Grandpa died young, so the child never got to meet him. But all the relatives pick up on things the child says and does that are just like your grandfather. And it's well documented that adopted children have the personality traits of their biological relatives and not the adoptive ones. How do you explain that otherwise? A person is not merely a body. We are composite beings comprised of body and soul. If you were to insist that the soul is not propagated with the body, then you would forever have to stop saying you're just like your father because you deny the only mechanism for such likeness. Now, Genesis 5 opens with these words, the book of the generations of Adam, not Adam the individual, but the species Adam, mankind. We'll read the verses again. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Now, there are several noteworthy things here. This is the preface to the history of the populating of the old world. 
It explains the violence and wickedness which brought the flood upon the world. Man was no longer the image bearer of God. Adam was made in God's image, but fallen Adam begat a son after his own image. And this seed in the likeness of fallen Adam populated the earth with evildoers that had to be destroyed. Genesis 5, 1 and 2 is describing also the reproductive constitution of Adam when he was created. In a very emphatic way, God marks the distinction of the sexes when he created man. First by Adam's temporary solitude and then by the creation of his wife. It's repeating Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Male and female created he them, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply. Right out of the blocks, God indicates that propagation of their entire being as they were Adam was the method of their increase. Man would grow in number by being fruitful and multiplying, and the products of this multiplying would be man, Adam, not mere bodies without souls. And immediately after that statement in Genesis 1 comes a narrative of the fall, the story of Cain and Abel, and then the birth of Seth. And just as the Holy Spirit is about to launch into an exhibition of the world's moral history in our ancestral line, he goes back to the original Genesis 1.28 ordinance of propagation as the key that explains everything that follows. In the day that God created man, male and female created he them and blessed them. The first element of that blessing was fruitfulness. And immediately after this, the Spirit tells of Seth's birth. Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Within such a short space, God repeatedly mentions the reproductive nature of Adam. Surely that's significant. Not only that, but the Spirit puts this theme in place right at the very beginning of the Bible in reference to the birth of Seth. The reason is obvious. It bears upon the doctrine of man's nature and original sin. The Bible's specific purpose is to unfold to us the nature and history of our relation to God. So, beginning with the story of creation and man made in the image of God, crowned with honor and dignity and in covenant with God, it reveals the history of man's fall. Then it announces the plan of redemption in the promise made to the woman. The Bible is a history of that plan. Every page of the Bible looks to that promise. And right at the very foundation of this unfolding account, we find the statement of Seth's birth. It's the very first recorded fact in the book of the generations of Adam, that is of mankind. This is not a casual remark. Examine the statement in its whole connection. You cannot escape the conclusion that it's deliberate. It explains the bond that connects us with the transgression and ruin of our first parents. Remove that statement from the Bible and you leave a gaping hole. The passage states the fact to which all subsequent Scripture looks back on as the explanation for mankind's sinfulness. Without this statement, there's no way of explaining our relation to Adam's sin. 
Now, the passage also gives us a distinct statement about Seth's soul. Adam begat a son in his own likeness after his image. Now, the begetting is described in terms of what the image was. Adam's whole image, body and soul, was reproduced in Seth. That's the whole point of the contrast. Adam was created in the image of God. Now he begets a son in his own image. Adam's likeness to God consisted in righteousness and true holiness. That's not what he begat in Seth. Scripture is contrasting the two natures. What Adam begat in Seth was a sinful, mortal man like himself. The conclusion is unavoidable. Seth's soul proceeded from his parents as well as his body. You know, if you, any book that you study, the definitions and ruling facts are always set out at the beginning. Well, this passage is in the opening chapters of the Bible. And therefore, it sets down a fact with which all subsequent Scripture deals. It's a key to all that follows. Now, though Job and his friends didn't have a full Bible, they undoubtedly knew this. They had this revelation. The revelation contained in the first 10 chapters of Genesis would have been possessed by these patriarchs. That's why we focused so much on Genesis 5. In our text, Job says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. One chapter later, we find Eliphaz echoing this doctrine in what was our text last Sunday. What is man that he should be pure, or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? A few chapters later, Bildad will assert the same doctrine. How can man be justified with God, or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? To what conclusion do these statements obviously lead? Well, what else but like begets like. Rhetorical questions are for emphasis. These patriarchs are emphatically stating the sinfulness of man. It's man's soul that is in view here and the fact that the soul comes from a defiled source. Our text simply, simply takes it for granted that the child derives not just its defilement but its moral being from defiled parents. Think again of the text that we read last Sunday, Psalm 51.5. In sin did my mother conceive me. This is similar in meaning to Jesus' remarks to Nicodemus, which we also read last Sunday. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. Now let's look at how the Bible uses that word flesh. And the first thing that you'll notice is how Jesus' statement coincides with Paul's many statements which imply that the soul was created originally pure, but is defiled by the body. You'll notice that Paul regularly uses the term flesh to refer to man's sinful nature. Paul always speaks of all the embodied principles of sin under the name flesh. Now, for those with some knowledge of biblical terminology, Paul uses the Greek word sarks. And whenever he uses that word sarks, he's not referring to the meat, flesh, body, but to the sinful principle, which is spiritual in nature. For instance, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, 
so that you do not do the things you wish. Galatians 5.17. You'll notice that the flesh is represented as the source and seat of sin. And the reason is clear when we take Jesus' words to Nicodemus into account. Jesus speaks of the necessity of the new birth. Why must a man be born again? Jesus says that the new birth is necessary because man's nature is polluted by virtue of birth from a polluted source. Therefore, man's nature requires a work which is as far-reaching in its influence over the whole nature. It requires a birth, a new birth unto holiness. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So let's make some important observations. Number one, the Bible calls the whole embodied principles of sin by the name flesh. Number two, these principles of sin are not material substances that exist on their own. They are qualities of the soul in the same way that blueness isn't a thing that exists on its own. It is a trait. Blueness isn't passed on, but blue eyes are. Number three, the principles of sin are spiritual in nature, but they're manifested by the body. Hence, the whole takes its name from the flesh, where it's most visibly displayed. Four, in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, we read, Now, the works of the flesh, sarks, are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Jesus says of these same sins that they don't originate in the body, but in the soul. We read it earlier, Mark 7, 21 to 23. <coughs> Excuse me. For from within, out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Fifthly, in John 3, Jesus asserts that the flesh, the sarks, is a subject of birth. It begets and is begotten. And the offspring of this birth is depraved because it springs from a depraved source. Like begets like. Sixthly, but then Jesus says that the subject of the new birth is exactly equal to the subject of the depraved birth. It is the, that which is born of the flesh which must be born of the spirit. And it is because of its fleshly birth that the new birth is necessary. Depravity is a quality of the soul. How can it be passed on to each successive generation unless the soul is also begotten? Now, if we were to say that depravity attaches only to the body and belongs naturally to it, well, that would mean that the soul is pure and it only gets defiled when it comes into contact with a body. But that would mean that Jesus was mistaken when he said that all these things come out of the heart and defile a man. Such, beloved friends, is our sad state by nature. Our objections cannot change the fact. But the grace of God can change our condition by changing our nature. Rather than challenge the justice of God in condemning us, let us invoke His mercy to create in us clean hearts and renew right spirits within us. My closing statement is especially to parents. Look upon those who are through you 
children of sin, because they are your children, and give all effort that you may, by God's grace, be their fathers and mothers in Christ too. Let us pray.